turn your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 28 through 34. While you're turning, I'll say we're getting back into our series. You remember I started the series a while ago. Mark's Biblical Answers to Puzzling Questions. What I said we want to do is just a look at a survey of the Gospel of Mark, one message from each chapter. And we were moving along in this and got interrupted some time ago. But now it gives us an opportunity to get back to it. But Mark's Biblical Answers to Puzzling Questions. The question today is, who do you love? Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, as asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. The topics recorded in chapter 12, and by the way, we remind you, the Gospel of Mark is like reading the headlines of a newspaper. A lot of information, a lot of references to a lot of events, but he doesn't go into a great amount of detail. It's, it's the shortest of the Gospels, but he covers more topics than some of the other Gospels. But the topics recorded in chapter 12 continue to emphasize the importance of Christ's ministry as his crucifixion is now just days away in the context here. The first 12 verses deal with the question of authority in the parable of the vineyard. Verses 13 through 17, a question of responsibility in paying tribute to Caesar. In verses 18 through 27, we have the question of eternity concerning the resurrection. We have verses 28 through 34 deal with a question of priority that we look at today in the greatest commandment. You have the question of identity addressed in verses 35 through 40, dealing with the indictment of the scribes. And verses 41 through 44, you have the topic of the two widows might dealing with the question of accountability. But here in our text, Love for God, we find, is the foundation for the Christian life, and it is the defining characteristic which identifies a true believer. A lot of folks can claim to be believers, but here we see an emphasis on a true believer, a genuine Christian, a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. True Christians are those who love the true and living God, and that, of course, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Someone has said true spiritual and eternal life begins with loving him imperfectly in this life and culminates in loving him perfectly in heaven. And certainly that is true. We do the best we can to love the Lord today, but there's coming a time when we will be perfect. The scripture tells us we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We'll stand in his presence and we will be able to, for the first time, when we see our Lord, to worship Him, to adore Him in perfection and in absolute truth. Now the confrontation in these verses, like the two that preceded it in this chapter, took place during Passion Week, the week prior to our Lord's crucifixion. The Lord's presence and teaching had dominated the temple court where he had chased out the corrupt merchants who had turned over the the tables and declared they had turned his uh, temple into a den of thieves. You had the religious leaders of Israel, particularly the Sadducees, the liberal group of the religious crowd, who were outraged by our Lord's assault on their temple. You had the Sanhedrin, who were also infuriated. By the way, they were the legal counsel of the Jews. They were under Roman authority, but the Sanhedrin served as the governing assembly of the Jewish people. When the Sanhedrin was infuriated with his assaults on their corrupt religious system and jealous of his popularity. And then you had the people's adulation had reached its uh, height when he entered Jerusalem. Remember the story there as he entered the city of Jerusalem on the the, the donkey and uh, people hailed him as the Messiah. Thousands gathered and uh, worshipped him at that moment. So you can imagine the religious crowd was pretty upset with our Lord. And uh, Despite their efforts to kill Jesus, to silence him, to end his threat to their way of life as they enjoyed, they had been unsuccessful. And now they're giving it one more shot. We see on two occasions he had been approached and was being challenged concerning his beliefs. We're not going to get into all that this morning. But uh, that's verses 13 through 17. He was challenged concerning paying tribute to Caesar. And then verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees questioned him about the resurrection, if you want to go back and look at it later. But this third attempt, the Sanhedrin hoped Jesus would get tripped up by giving a commandment not found in the law of Moses. They were asking, what's the greatest commandment? In the eyes of both the people and the leaders, Moses was the supreme figure in their history. And they felt if they could trip Jesus up and get him to slip up here in connection with Moses, it would thus taint the view of the people as they looked toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were looking for a way to catch him in this. So a young man approaches him and we see three things in this passage of scripture. We're going to see the request the response, and the reaction. Notice with me in verse 28, the request. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, I've shared this with you before, how there's the the Jews see 613 commands in the Old Testament. 365 negative commands, one for each day of the year, and the rest are positive commands. How do you boil all that down to the most important command? It's just like asking somebody, well not, it's similarly, asking somebody today, what's the most important thing in life to you? People will give a variety of answers. Family, 
friendship, health, security, wealth, power, prestige, acceptance. The list can go on and on. So they were attempting to get Jesus to give them an answer that they could turn back at him so they could attack him and undermine his credibility. Matthew tells us this scribe was both a Pharisee and a lawyer, which, by the way, is an alternate title for a scribe. That's in Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, and so on. Scribes. Scribes were professional scholars specializing in the interpretation and application of the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and rabbinic regulations. So if anybody was qualified to be a candidate for trying to trick the Lord and getting backed into a corner, this man met those qualifications. They were given a respectable title, that of rabbi, meaning master, teacher, or great one. So we see this scribe was a logical choice for this attempt. However, there's something interesting as to this man's approach. He wasn't as brash and condescending as others. You remember reading the accounts of the Gospels, how Jesus was approached in many different ways and in manners. Well, this man approached him with a a softness, a kindness, if you will. He came with no apparent hostile or hidden motive now, granted, he did have one, but it didn't show. He did a good, good job of masking it. And uh, understand, this man's goal was to get Jesus to say something they could use against him. So what was his request? Master, what is the greatest commandment? What is that one commandment you uphold as being more important than all other? So that briefly is the idea of the request here. The problem, someone has said, as to these scribes, is they were more concerned about which command was more important than they were about obeying the commands. So you see his motive there wasn't necessarily which one should we obey most. It's which one do you, which one do you think is most important? Well, getting to the second thought here, where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Verses 29, 30, and 31. You have Jesus' response. And his answer says it comes in the form of two commands. He put them together. This was not what the critics wanted. It was a better answer. Jesus' reply went beyond the debated lighter and weightier classifications of the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders at that time. It went to what was most important and what would summarize the entire law. You see, the, the Jews were constantly, the Jews, the Jewish religious crowd, they were constantly debating about which commandments were more important than others. And they had this way of separating them out, saying, these are things that we just absolutely have to obey. These are things that we can debate and discuss and determine how to apply them. And by the way, they continue to do that to this day. It's amazing. It's like other groups who might have menial and venial sins and so on. It's the idea people like to categorize sin. And what is the tendency for most anybody who follows that practice? What you do goes on the really important list. What I do goes on the, well, it's not a big deal list. And that's the way we have a tendency to look at life, isn't it? 
You're a bigger sinner than me. I can get away with much more than you can. It's the idea that I'm the exception to the rule. Well, the Jews kind of had that whole argument going on and have had for centuries. But again, they were trying to trick Jesus here. His simple response set them back. Notice it comes in two forms. Love God, love others. And by the way, Christianity can be truly summed up in those two areas. Love God, love others. Let's look briefly at what he said. Verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's not leaving anybody out of the equation. He's saying, all of you Jews, this is, this is a matter for everybody. Not just the religious crowd, not just the privileged crowd, but this is for everyone. By the way, we see he expands this to all mankind. In naming the first and greatest commandment declares it is to love God. How? Four things here. Loving with all your heart. This phrase sometimes means the whole inner man. It's not talking about that piece of flesh that's beating regularly in our chest. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's our true-heartedness, as opposed to a hypocritical or divided affection. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No man can serve two masters. You can't have a divided heart. You can't have a divided affection and commitment. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to hold to the one and despise the other. So you have to make a choice. And by the way, all throughout biblical history, we see God's man standing before God's people saying, you have to choose, follow God or follow the world. Be with him or be against him. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to these folks. You can't serve two masters. You have to make up your mind. Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 15. We know he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah, 1 Kings 18, stood before the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. The tragedy is the close of that verse is, And the people answered him not a word. How sad. Many today, they're aware of the fact that a decision has to be made. They have to make a choice, but yet they don't have enough character and conviction and concern for their own soul, their own family, to choose to follow the Lord. Beloved, we cannot be guilty of taking a middle-of-the-road stance when it comes to right and wrong. He goes on to say, with all your soul. This refers to our emotions. Well, there you go. Each of us are loaded with emotions. Uh, that, that refers to our feelings, our affections. Jesus said in Matthew 26, Then saith he unto, me, unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And that was in his night of prayer before being arrested. You know, we all have to deal with emotions. We have our affections. We have our interests. We have our likes. We have our dislikes. But when he says you ought to love the Lord with your whole soul, it means those things that we desire 
those things we long for, those things we dwell upon, they ought to be that which is pleasing to the Lord. That's why Paul tells us, think on these things. What things? Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. You know, God tells us in his word how we ought to live, and he also tells us how we ought to speak, and goes so far as to tell us how we ought to think. You say, well, what kind of a God is that? It's one who loves us so much. He died for us. He wants us to focus on, he wants us to concentrate on that which will lead us and draw us closer to him. Why do you think his word says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you? Any of you who have raised children, one of the fondest memories no doubt you have is when your children would climb up on your lap and hug you and just want to be close to you. That's how the Lord looks at us. He wants us to be close to him. He doesn't want to force us to stand at his side. He wants us to choose to do so. Remember when you're walking your children through a store? They'd have, they'd, it just seemed like they wanted to go everywhere. I mean, they wanted to touch everything. They wanted to go where you didn't want to go. And you'd have to hold their hand and keep them close by your side. Well, the Lord does that sometimes in regard to sin as we chase after the things of this world. Because he does love us. But oh, how it, I believe it thrills his heart more when we choose to say no to the world and stand next to him. Walk with God. Walk in light. We looked at that last week. Our love for the Lord ought to be demonstrated by our affection, by our emotion. We ought to love the Lord with all our mind. This is our intellect. We're admonished to put intelligence into our affection and be opposed to blind devotion. This requires an exercise of the mind. Isn't it amazing how over the course of the last weeks and months we have seen people blindly follow vain, foolish, selfish, and evil advisors. And we've seen people choose, and you see it in the news today, with all these riots and all the, the violence and the uh, Chaz uh, area there in Seattle. What a joke. What utter foolishness. Because people followed like dumb animals rather than stopping and thinking, what's right? What's wrong? Do I do this or not? Anybody who takes a moment and stops to think, is it okay to shoot this person because I want to take what they have? Is it okay to rob this store? Is it okay to set the city on fire? Any reasonable individual, anybody with an ounce of intelligence would have to say, no, I'll not do that. But the problem is, evil reigns in the heart of man. This is not something that's done for political good. This is not done as an expression of sympathy and compassion and support for a man who wrongfully died at the hand of some police officers that overstepped their authority. This is not done for the betterment of our nation. This is evil at work in the hearts and lives of individuals, and they're trying to destroy 
that which has become so near and dear to us, and that is the rights and privileges we have as Americans. If you don't like America, leave. Go somewhere else. This is a great nation. And yet people have allowed stupidity to reign in this very area. Why? Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the times that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. I realize over half the world's population have never heard the name Jesus Christ in their own tongue. That is a tragedy. That is a failure of the modern church age in not doing more to get the gospel to the regions beyond. But beloved, everybody, wherever they are in the world, no matter what language, no matter what nationality, no matter what race, no matter what people group, no matter what tongue, they can look around and see there is a God. Creation demands a creator. Design requires the work of a designer. Bible tells us we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Anybody who with an ounce of intelligence looks at the human body cannot with reason say, well, it just happened one day. Far too much evidence to counter the theories of evolution, theistic evolution, uh, and all the other ideologies that are out there in the world today. We believe God is the creator of the world. God is the creator of mankind. And John chapter 1 tells us that everyone is born with a knowledge. There is a God. We refer to it as intuitive knowledge in John chapter 1. And as well, creation gives testimony to the fact there is a creator. So what, what the scripture is saying here is man is without excuse to choose to rebel against God or against God's word. Goes on to tell us in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. I realize there are a thousand other things we could say in regard to this, but we are to love the Lord with our mind. We are to intelligently approach the Lord in our love, our adoration, and our worship. And then the fourth thought here, we are to love the Lord with our strength. This commands our energies. This puts intensity into our affection. There's nothing wrong with being emotional in our worship of the Lord. But it ought to be done in an intelligent manner. And it ought to be done with great energy and emphasis. Determination. 
purpose. Our worship ought to have meaning associated with it, and it ought to be that which moves us to action and activity. How can people say they love God and sit around and never do anything, thought, word, or deed, to demonstrate that love for Him? God expects us to be active in our worship of Him. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. It's Ecclesiastes 9.10. In the New Testament, we see that thought repeated in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Oh, if every one of us would come in here and heartily worship the Lord. What a difference it would make in our own hearts and souls, how encouraging and how exciting it would be to be around a group of people that love God and want to demonstrate it in thought, word, and deed. Yes, we are to love the Lord with all our our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Robert Murray McShane said, live near to God so all things will appear to you little in comparison to eternal realities. Get closer to God. J.B. Massillon said, God should be the object of all our desires, the end of all our actions, the principle of all our affections, and the governing power of our souls. Yes, Jesus' response was twofold. Love God, love others. Verse 31. Mark 12, 31. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. After reminding us of our uttermost affection for the Lord and how it ought to be demonstrated, and by the way, that's reserved for God. He's not telling us to love others with all of our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. Let's not misunderstand this. He is telling us, as we see him quoting from Leviticus 19:18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. He's telling me to love you like I love myself. He's telling you to love me and to love one another like you love yourself. Ephesians tells us no man hated himself. You don't feel good, what do you do? You just sit down and say, well, I deserve it. No, you take a feel-better pill. You're hurt, you're injured, you want to go ahead and have that wound or that injury treated. You're not feeling well, you want it addressed. There's something wrong with you physically. You go to a doctor so you can find out and get some help. The idea is we care about ourselves. We don't want ourselves to be hurt. We don't want to go without. We don't want to be deprived. And as a result, we are concerned that we are treated as best as possible. That's just human nature. Well, God says, I want you to think that way about everybody else. Well, what about people I don't like? Love your enemies. It tells us, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. But you don't know what she said about me. You don't know what he did to me. Doesn't matter. The scripture doesn't have a qualifier in there for people we're upset with or for people who are upset with us. It says, be ye kind one to another. It makes it quite clear that others ought to be of great importance to us. 
You see, Jesus took an old law and filled it with a new meaning. Matthew seven twelve. Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This, by the way, is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back and look at it sometime. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. The Lord's point there was that we're to have the same love for neighbors and strangers and enemies that we have for ourselves. And then in Matthew chapter 22, he tells us, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All 613 of those commands that are identified, said every one of them can be boiled down to these two thoughts. Love God, love others. All right, we're almost done here. We get to this third thought, the reaction. Somebody said, it's no chore for me to love the whole world. (laughs) My problem is loving the person that lives next door. Now, that's addressed in that. Now he moves on to this, the reaction. What's the young man say? Notice verse 32, the scribe said, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he, and to love him with all thy heart, with all thy understanding, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and to love his neighbors himself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see, the scribe recognized the accuracy of Jesus' answer and voiced his approval viewing him as an excellent teacher. As we said, this is a much different approach than many of the other people who tried to uh, trap the Lord and get him to make a mistake. But this young man, he sees wisdom in what the Lord has said. By the way, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that he referred to, he said, this is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The burnt offerings were those offerings that were fully consumed. When somebody would bring an offering to the temple, the tabernacle, and it was altered, offered on the altar and completely consumed. That's the burnt offerings. The sacrifices were those sacrifices, those offerings that were brought that were partially consumed by fire and partially consumed by worshipers, such as a sacrifice that would be cut and certain parts would be put on the altar to be burned and certain parts would be eaten by the worshipers. So this young man is saying, wow, that pretty much covers everything in regard to the offerings we bring to the Lord. So you see, he had a a good response to what our Lord said, but you know, a lot of times if we just learn to stop talking, if we get to a point when we hit a period after a sentence, if we just stop. This fella, verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. You see, the problem is this young man acknowledged that what Jesus said was correct but he did not choose to agree with him and accept him. So somewhere in this process, I'm reading into it here, he had to say no to Jesus. That was a mistake. Someone has said you can never write down the words no and Lord and present them to him in the same statement. If we say no, he's not Lord. If we say Lord, we won't say no. 
Well, this young fella, he let his reason get in the way. Someone has said, common sense tells us that one is not in, they are out. You see, he wasn't in the kingdom of God. So he found himself under the penalty, having to deal with man's lost condition. He refused to accept the substitutionary work of Christ, the hope of eternal life. And as a result, he walked away from the Lord that day, not knowing his eternal destiny. You know, Jesus Christ is the hope of all mankind. He is God's offer of salvation, and that offer is available to everyone. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If only people would come to realize God wants us to love him, and he's made it possible for us to do so by allowing Jesus to die on the cross. You understand, Jesus died on the cross. It made it possible for us to know we have the forgiveness of sin. What a blessing. What a joy. We ought to, like we sang this morning, I love to tell the story. We ought to share that with people and let them know that great truth. The tragedy for countless millions is they have considered the words of Christ like this young man and are yet to come to him. You think of Agrippa, Paul standing before this great king, this well-known leader, and having an opportunity to give his testimony. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. What was Agrippa's answer? He said, almost thou persuadest me. To be a Christian, how tragic. Almost isn't enough. Close with these thoughts here. The great vastness of this law is threefold. The law of love is so great, it causes thinking and honest men and women to agree. The law of love exceeds all offerings and sacrifices. And the law of love is so great, it provides salvation to anyone and everyone who would receive it. You're familiar with the name Alan Alda, television actor. He said, one thing that I want to tell you that only a non-doctor can tell you, and this is this, that the head bone is connected to the heart bone. Don't ever let them come apart. If only we would stop and think and remind ourselves, love God, love others. Whatever situation, whatever event, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, stop and think. Love God, love others. That'll make a huge, huge difference in our daily activities and our outlook on life. This poem by an unknown author. The crossing was muddy, the street was wide, and water was running on either side. The wind whistled past with a bitter moan, and I winded my weary way alone. In crossing the street, I chanced to pass a boy in the arms of a wee toddling lass. Isn't he heavy, my sweet little mother? Oh no, she replied, he's my baby brother. Thy load may be heavy, thy road may be long. The winds of adversity bitter and strong. 
But the way will seem brighter if we love one another. The burden will be light if we carry a brother. Who do you love today? The scripture tells us, love God, love others.